Welcome to Murder in the Black with Steph and MB. Today's episode is about Carrie Harris. I've entitled this episode, Take All Threats Seriously. Carrie was born in March of 1977. And when she arrived on the scene, she was the youngest of the Harris family. She was born to her father, who was a railroad worker, and her mother, who was a nurse. She already had two older brothers and three older girls that absolutely adored her. And she was afforded every privilege that you can imagine that the youngest child does receive. Family described her personality as bubbly. She was kind and simply a breath of fresh air. And when I think about a person who is a breath of fresh air, they revive the room wherever they go. They're always smiling, barely complain, kind, always has a great word for you of encouragement or just perhaps the smile to do. And it always brings the joy to your day. And honestly, this was Carrie's genuine personality. She was not putting on for anyone. This is who she was at her core. I, I found out through my research of this case that being a railroad family often means that you look similar to army brats. And I never thought the two could compare, but according to Carrie's brother, they would move just about every two years. Their father would get promoted within the company and then they would have to move and he would do whatever the whatever he was required to do there and then another two years, so on and so forth. So they didn't settle down till about the time that Carrie became school age. And they finally settled in Memphis, Tennessee. And I think this is kind of like a good example because it falls right in line in the season that we are in. And her sister recounted that during Christmas, you know, Carrie was just different. She stood out from her brothers and sisters because instead of wanting toys and gadgets and video games and Barbie dolls, she wanted a book. She would get so excited about new books and just was the type of person who was excited to learn and learn just about anything. Um, it could be biographies, you know, it could be nonfiction. It didn't matter. She wanted to soak it all in. And her brother also commented on the fact that her library card was always filled with stamps. And I had to include that in this episode. I'm going to tell you why. Because I felt like Generation X needs to know how privileged they are. And y'all are privileged. And that's, hey, don't, don't be ashamed of that privilege. Because back in the day, when you go to the library, in the front of the book, before you get to the index page and the chapter index, you would literally open that book and on the front cover, on the back of the front cover, I should say, there would be a manila pocket that would be glued down to the book. And the librarian would give you a index card. And on that index card, they would write down the book that you 
um, have checked out and then they would stamp it, letting you know when you should bring it back or when you should, you know, um, renew it. And, and it was a whole thing, y'all. That was their system back then. So to simply have to just go and swipe your car and everything is completely automated is amazing to me because they used to have to scan barcodes and check you out. And it was, it was a time. It was a time. But uh, we have since graduated from that. But thank you, God. But you see, her brother was simply trying to say she read books that ferociously. She was into books just like that. And if you guys would allow me to, I was the same way as a kid. You know, a lot of people, you know, say things about their childhood and you're just like, yeah, right. I don't believe that. No, seriously, my mother always used to tell me, girl, you sleep with books. You know, you barely play. With, I did not play with Barbie dolls. I played with books. And my mom instilled a love of reading within all of my siblings. But we would go to the libraries on Sunday. It was just fun. And I loved reading. So I relate to Carrie. I feel like we, you know, in a sense, we soul sisters because of that, because I totally understand. So with her just sticking out of the group in a good way, they knew that she was going to be an awesome student. And about the time she went to high school, she had a bright future ahead of her. And everybody knew it. Teachers always would compliment her on her behavior, but her academic work was top tier. And it was so good, in fact, that while she was just a sophomore, she started to receive offers from colleges to go to different colleges around the state and around, I mean, and throughout the United States. And those offers continued into her senior year. And at the end, she had to decide, what am I gonna do? Where am I gonna go? The world was simply hers. She had everything for the taking. And she ultimately decided to go to Alabama A&M in Huntsville, Alabama. Now, if you don't know, that is a HBCU. We've covered another case, I believe, about someone who went to a HBCU. But if you need a refresh and you don't know what that is, HBCU is a historically black college and or university. So, you know, that's, that's a place where you can really find solidarity in the Black culture. And a lot of our HBCUs programs are known and are renowned throughout the, throughout the country. And so comparatively speaking to a PWI, which is a predominantly white institution, it is just an experience that is unlike any other that you will ever experience. Okay, so the fact that she decided to go to a HBCU was not just solely about the culture and social benefits that you receive from going to one. It was also about their exemplary food and service department, because while she was in high school, she recognized that she really liked chemistry. But she didn't want to go to the medical side of it or even the pharmaceutical side. She 
started to learn about food. And as I said, she was just a person who ferociously read and loved to learn new things. And when she got to the end of her high school career, she wanted to study food and science. And so it was just a match made in heaven when she decided to attend, to attend Alabama A&M. If you haven't noticed already, let's be very clear. She was very goal oriented and had a plan and absolutely stuck to it. I admire that about her because I know that comparatively speaking, and I can't give you stats, but in my experience, I mean, there are very few people who go to college and know exactly what they want to do and just go through it seamlessly as possible. No problems. Get their career started and keep going. Okay. Because I was that person who I went into college and I was like, I don't really know what I want to do. And then am I really smart to smart enough to do what I want to do? So I had to, I had to discover that I was intelligent, you know, that I could do hard things. And I just kind of went down a path that while I wish it was as straightforward as Carrie, it simply was not. So I, you know, I just, it was the journey that was meant for me, for sure. And I think a lot of people who go to college have the same experience as I do, or maybe they even have the same experience as Carrie. But I just don't feel like that's the norm. I think you're a little bit different to do what Carrie did. So Carrie went to Alabama A&M, graduated in four short years, and she was the first person in her family and her siblings to graduate from college. And it was a group effort. Their family believed in support and loving on each other. That was very important to see each other win. And that's exactly how the Harris family was. They wanted to see their siblings win and they didn't care that maybe they didn't achieve the same accomplishments as each other, but they wanted to just be there in the crowd rooting for you. And that's exactly what they did. It was an accomplishment for them. They felt like this is an accomplishment for our family. This is an achievement for the Harris clan. And it absolutely was. And I just love their family dynamic because you could tell through some of the interviews that I watched that they were close knitted together. And their parents intentionally did that. And you have to be intentional about making siblings close because just because you grow up together does not mean that y'all are going to be close and or remain close after you die and gone to see the Lord. You see what I'm saying? And so her family, definitely her siblings specifically were very intertwined and supportive of Carrie. So Carrie's now looking for a new job. She just graduated from college. She's on the job hunt and lo and behold, she lands her absolute dream job. And it's a place called Cargill and it is in Atlanta, Georgia. 
her family was happy for her because it was exactly what she wanted to do. And if you're not familiar with Cargill, it is a food processing and manufacturing plant. And her family was excited. They were like, oh my gosh, yes, good job. But they really wanted her to come back to Memphis because they felt like you've been away for college. Uh, why couldn't this job be in Memphis? It would be perfect. You would have family support. We would be able to see you a lot more often. Um, you know, we just always thought that this would be the place that you would settle. But as I've said already, she was a person with a made up mind. She was like, well, this is my dream job and I'm not going to miss that opportunity. And of course, her family rallied behind her and, you know, just supported her through that transition of college to real life and she loved her job she absolutely loved her job so she was able to move up the ranks of that company fairly quickly and before she knew it she became a quality assurance manager for uh, cargo and she was thriving but as she began to climb the ladder she noticed that most of the people who were executives in an upper level management possessed a master's degree, which is not unusual for most fields. So literally looking outside of her window, because right outside of her apartment across the street was Mercer University. She enrolled in their master's program and started to take classes at night so that she could graduate with her master's and then receive the huge promotion that she wanted to have in the company. Very strong-willed, very determined, and very disciplined, I would say. And that really is, in a small snapshot, who Carrie was. And she was that and so much more. But just to provide you a little bit of a snapshot into what she was, what she had going on in her life at the time, I think is so important. I failed to mention that in 2008, Carrie was 31 years old. So I just want you to keep that in mind as we go on to what actually took place on June 26, 2008. You wouldn't believe how many people go through the, their routines throughout the day and they don't even give it a second thought. It's second nature. It's what they do every day. And this morning, June 26, 2008, was very routine for Carrie. She woke up, got to work, but had no idea that by noon that same day, she would encounter a very dangerous situation in a place where you would think you could be safe. You were comfortable. It was in second to probably her home, a safe space, a place where she could get her work done, where she didn't have to worry about a whole lot of things going on. But that day turned out very different for Carrie. By, by noon, a 911 dispatcher in DeKalb County received a phone call from somebody at Cargill Manufacturing Company. 
they told the 911 dispatcher that they had an employee who was found in their office and they were stabbed. They did not know how long she had before she could possibly die, but they heavily encouraged for them to go ahead and dispatch 911 and EMT. They do. And once police arrive, they notice that the scene is completely ransacked. Her office specifically has things thrown about. It's like somebody just completely just came in and just swiped their hands along her desk and all throughout her office. It was just in a total disarray. So they begin, of course, to perform life-saving measures on Carrie in an effort to save her life. However, after a short time passed, they could not save her life. Now, Carrie had a knife sticking out of her neck. And once the coroner was called and the body was, moved, was removed, they were able to go in and collect all the evidence that they could need to find out who would want to kill Carrie. It just didn't add up. So the first piece of evidence that they retrieved was obviously the knife from her neck. Once they looked at her neck, they were able to also look at her back and see that she also had a stab wound there as well. They take the DN they take the knife and go ahead and put that away for forensic testing. They then look at the blood splatter along the wall. They notice the pattern there and they see that the perpetrator who committed this heinous crime actually kept stabbing in the same wound over and over again, even though Carrie hit the ground. They noticed that this was an attack from the back because there were no defensive wounds on Carrie at all. She just seemed as if she walked into her office, somebody obviously surprised her and just took her off, off, off her feet. And she had no way of defending herself. All of these things together, they are just trying to figure out who would want to kill her. But, you know, they have to start at the ground floor. Also, before I move on from the evidence, due to the fact that the perpetrator committed this crime using a knife, they ultimately believed that this was a personal attack that this person wanted Carrie dead. They set out to kill her. And I know that sounds funny um, because like, right, obviously they set out to kill her, they stabbed her. But they wanted that to kill somebody with a knife is such an intimate act. It's more intimate than shooting someone with a gun, you know, cause you don't have to be right up on them to shoot and to, you know, possibly kill them. You don't have to do that. So it's very intimate to be face to face with somebody and still have the courage, if that's what we want to call it, because I'm just going to call it evil, to stab somebody to death. I mean, it's literally mind boggling. So that's the evidence. They get everything they need. They package up stuff. They run things to the, to the forensic lab and are awaiting those results. But in the meantime, in between time, they need to start questioning people. And in the natural pecking order, they start to question the employees. Because after all, 
Cargo Company was not just a company where you could, any Joe Blow from off the street can enter into their place of business. Not like that at all. They had to have a special key card to be able to enter the building. So naturally the cops are like, either somebody let this person in, or this is absolutely an employee because otherwise it just doesn't make sense. They found out that while Carrie was in her room being attacked, there was a meeting going down close to her office, just maybe three or four doors down. They hear Carrie scream, and so they immediately get up and they find that Carrie is on the ground. She's been attacked. But not only that, they see who left the building. And who do they see? A man named Craig Armstead. He had worked for Cargill Food and Manufacturing Company for about eight years. And everybody described him as just a good guy. Like he was average, like in far as far as his looks. And I would say just an average person. Like you could, you know, you either love him or you don't, or you just are very indifferent about him. Um, I can say that nobody was like, I we I, we absolutely hated Craig. It was just more of an indifference um about his personality. And that is where the police identify him as a primary suspect. They're trying to figure out where did this guy go and we need to hurry up and figure this out because he's a danger to the community. So what they do is they put out a bolo. If you're not familiar with the bolo, a bolo is when the police in your particular city start to start to send out an announcement, so to speak, to let other surrounding suburbs and cities know that that this particular police station is looking for this person. So if you see anybody matching this description, bring them to me. So her family, I want to talk about Carrie's family. Carrie's family, as I've already mentioned, were very supportive but they noticed some red flags throughout this situation. So let's dive into what was going on and why would Craig want to even kill her? What we find out is that even though Carrie received her absolute dream job, it came with some very hellish and nightmare attachments, you know, when she first got to the company, Craig welcomed her and he did this for a lot of women that came on the job. He welcomed them with the cupcake with cupcakes that he baked himself and or a cake. And he did the same thing for Carrie. Well, Carrie doesn't feel like she wants to take that. And, you know, it wasn't revealed if the first thing that he made for her, if she took it or not. Was she rude or not? It it didn't give details like that, but it simply said that Carrie was very particular. She was a food scientist, okay? Like, she was ahead of the game. She never liked touching, eating other people's food, and she don't know what happened in their kitchen. She don't know what did they do with their hands, you know? 
she just was very like, no, I'm good trying to get away from sweets. You know, she just was like, no, I, I'm not willing to accept that, but thank you so much. And the meantime, in between time, it really was for a good reason. But how do you even really say that to somebody? Like, I don't know where your hands been. I don't want no parts of your cupcakes and or cake. But she said it, I assume, in a very tactful way. And, you know, Carrie started to just feel like there wasn't something quite right about Craig. That's what she felt deep inside. She couldn't put her finger on it. She couldn't say what it was. She couldn't say exactly what he did to make her feel uncomfortable. All she knew was that she was uncomfortable. So eventually, Craig, you know, started to do, you know, started to just ask her, bake things, try to give it to her. It became absolutely exhausting. So while she is going on with her life, going on with her master's program, Craig is following her. But at the time, she had no reason to suspect Craig. She was leaving work when she called her mother and they were talking. And she noticed in her rearview mirror that maybe two cars behind her, the vehicle was following her. And she told her mom, like, I don't, I don't understand. Like, why is this car following me? Every time I make a move, every time I make a turn, they turn. Every time I do this, they do it. And she said, why is this, you know, what is going on? And her mom just encouraged her. She said, listen, do not go home. Go anywhere but home. Go inside a safe place, a mall, something, but do not go home. Carrie ends up pulling over and parking at a police station, which was amazing that it was close to her. But she then starts to wonder whose car was that? So as she finishes parking, she looks to her left and she just sees the glimpse of a white car. It was a white car that was following her. So she just, you know, she, like, as I said before, she had no reason to suspect Craig, no proof, no evidence. She, she knew what car he drove, but she, you know, didn't really see she saw a flash of a car. So it was just really jumbled in her mind. She just knew at the end of the day, Craig was a weirdo and she was uncomfortable with his presence. So before we talk more about this insanity plea chat, we have to discuss another event that took place with Carrie before she died. The day before, on June 24th, a co-worker who she supervised went into the women's bathroom and found what looked like a makeup bag just sitting by itself with, you know, no one to attend to it. She also saw like a red light peering through the makeup bag. And she thought, okay, I could go see who this belongs to, or I could be who we usually are, which is nosy and open this up. She unzips the makeup bag and she finds out that it's a camera, that somebody has had a camera in the women's bathroom. She quickly goes to 
to Carrie and says, hey, like there's a camera in the woman's bathroom. What should we do? And Carrie said, well, oh, we're going to go to HR about this. Like, this is crazy. And it wasn't said that she knew that this camera situation was linked to Craig, but I guarantee you probably more than likely she probably knew in the pit of her gut, he probably did have something to do with it because he was a weirdo. There's no other way to describe him. He was a weirdo. So she tries to go to HR that particular day, but HR has already gone for the day and they wouldn't be back in for the next work day. So there wasn't much she could do. She just had to wait, hold her horses until the very next day. And on June 26th, she goes in, I said June 24th, I meant June 25th was the day before. And on June 26th, she goes in and as she's walking to go give this makeup bag, which includes a camera to HR, she walks right past Craig. She delivers the bag to HR and she goes back to her office. Not even 10 to 15 minutes go by and Craig is seen on surveillance footage carrying a knife and headed straight for her office. So, you may be wondering, what was on those tapes? What happened? What is that even about? Here's the truth of it, guys. Craig was a sick man. He was a very sick man. Craig had been putting a camera in the bathroom for years, maybe even the whole eight years that he was there. He would simply go into the bathroom, place this recording or the, the camera in an unsuspecting place, leave it, and he would then go home after the day was done, download everything that was on this camera, and then he had separate DVDs of different people that he collected, and he would then download the footage onto these different DVDs that he created. So at the same time, he was sitting down with investigators to discuss the murder of Carrie. It was the same time they executed that search warrant, and that is what they found in his home. And they could not believe it. So while he's being interviewed, trying to play crazy, trying to act like Frank did it, why you got to lie, Craig? That's all I could think about y'all listening to this episode. Why you got to lie? Okay, if you don't know, then well, you just don't know. It comes from a movie. So they then go and confront him as he's trying to play the crazy card. And they say, hey, listen, like we found all that video footage. We know that HR was gonna blow up your spot. And for the quickest second, he snaps out of it and he's like, yeah. Yeah. I couldn't let that come to light. I couldn't let 
that happened. But then he quickly transitions back into Frank and what Frank would do and what Frank would, and you know, the videos kept Frank at bay. It, you know, helped him with his urges to kill women. And that's why he was recording those women, trying to justify why he's recording women in bathroom stalls so that he wouldn't murder them. The gall. Oh my gosh, y'all. So police, um, they realize what he's trying to do by acting crazy and trying to play that card. They know his history. They know his story. They're like, you know what? We know that you didn't all of a sudden work for a company for eight years and then decide you was going to go crazy and go rogue and just kill somebody. If that was really true, if you really were crazy, this behavior would have shown up long before now. So the police are gathering everything they got, y'all, to essentially convict him. And they have a plethora of evidence. And I would be remiss if I did not run down the evidence they had against this man. They had eyewitness account that identified him leaving the scene of the crime they also had um they also had surveillance footage with him having a knife in his hand walking down the hallway headed into the direction of carrie's office right they then had his own confession, although his confession, he really tried to throw them off by saying that he um, was crazy and Frank made him do it. But, you know, that was an admittance nevertheless, right? So they then had motive with the video footage or the camera that was found in the bathroom. So they, they had a rock solid case. Um, far better than what I've seen in um, other cases. And they just wanted to make sure that they nailed this guy to the wall, um, so to speak, because they did not want this person who was capable of this much evil to ever be let out of prison. In true form, Craig decides he wants to go ahead and plead not guilty due to insanity. And his defense team tried to say, you know, he was just, he didn't know right from wrong. He did not know what he was doing. You know, he was just out of control. He was in a, uh, you know, uh, some type of psychosis and he, he wasn't aware. And they said, you know, that's not true. He was aware because he fled the scene. People who don't know right from wrong would have stayed. Not only did he flee the scene, but he like literally, tried to avoid the police because he thought they were going to catch him. And as a result, ended up crashing his vehicle. People who are not in their right mind, who have no true sense of right and wrong, don't, don't flee. And they were able to bring up his past in court to just kind of like show a trend, show a pattern that this guy was a fraud. And he just genuinely was, as plain as day, an evil person. You're just evil guy. You know, Craig, you're just an evil person. And that's what they discovered. 
Now, thankfully, the verdict was guilty on all charges. He received life plus 60 years. And in Atlanta, you have to complete 90% of your sentence to even be considered for parole. And in this case, he won't ever be considered for parole. And that made my heart happy once we or once I ended this case. I was very thrilled that he was found guilty on all 23 counts. Um, let me briefly just go over what those counts were because I didn't say it before I read the verdict. The 23 counts were aggravated assault, possession of a gun, unlawful, um, unlawful, I'm like, I'm going to go through all 23. No, I'm not. But basically unlawful um, recording. They got him on that and they um, got him on committing a felony. It, y'all, this case was a lot. And I researched this particular case at a time where I was researching cases back to back, because that's what I like to do. I like to kind of like just knock it out. And so I was researching cases back to back and this was, I was depleted. I couldn't watch another case after this. I said, no, can't do it today. I am officially checked out for true crime for the day. And for me, that is saying a lot to me because I love true crime. But that is the conclusion of Carrie Harris's case. There was another incident that really made her kind of confused and fed into her feelings of Craig being weird and just something being off about Craig. She started to have car problems and it seemed to come out of absolutely nowhere. Didn't have car problems before, but she gets to work one day and her car just decides not to start. And it's time to go home. It's the end of the workday. And Craig comes out of the manufacturing company and he says to her, oh, I know exactly how to fix this. And he jumps her car. And it was almost as if he knew exactly what to do without her even really having to run off what the problem was. He knew exactly what to do to get her car started. And I guess, you know, it's easier to justify that by saying, well, oh, he's a man and I'm sure he just knows how to fix things. And that's really what she did. She just felt like, oh, okay, you know, I guess he was just being helpful and she thanked him she said thank you so much for helping me I, I i appreciate this and she left and went about her way but the next day craig wanted something from her he wanted her to go on a date and she told craig just you know plain as day listen i'm not interested but i have a rule set for myself where I don't mix business and pleasure and we are co-workers I don't want to have that relationship I don't want my personal life at work I want to keep work at work and my personal life to myself so I'm thank you no thank you okay and Craig just kept 
pushing, kept giving her gifts, kept asking her for dates. And it evolved quickly into a snowball of a situation, really a, a snowball of harassment. She gets to her wit's end and he keeps trying to give her with things, keeps trying to get her to go out with him. And no matter what way she says no, she's stuck in between a rock and a hard place. A job that she absolutely loves and feels like she will get all the different opportunities um, by staying with them and receiving her master's. And it was a sure thing that she was absolutely going to get promoted. She said, okay, I'm going to do the first course of action to try to stop this man's behavior because it is completely out of hand. She goes to HR, as you are trained to do, and she lets them know that she has been harassed, gives them whatever receipts they needed to confirm it, and they sat Craig down, gave him a written and verbal warning to say that you can have no contact with Carrie at all. We don't ever want to see you talking to her. We don't want to see you trying to contact her you know, via phone, nothing. And Craig says to them, well, I have to talk to her for work. I have to communicate with her. And they said, well, then you need to make sure that when you do communicate with her, it should be on email and you have to CC us and we have to be aware and made privy of the conversation. So what is he going to do? He needs a job. He agrees. So Carrie felt like, okay, this problem is solved. You know, surely he's not going to go against, um, you know, HR and their requirement and policies. He's been reprimanded. This man probably needs his job. Who wants to lose their job? And so she felt like it was solved. So a coworker soon after that tells Carrie, hey, girl, let me take you out to a happy hour. I really need to talk to you about that Craig fellow. So she says, okay, you know, cool. They hit up the happy hour and her coworker begins to say that Craig, Craig is a murderer and he actually murdered his ex-girlfriend back in New Jersey. Now, the co-worker doesn't say how she found this information out. She just says, girl, I want you to know that this man, like, has a history of stalking. So, Carrie, being a true OG, because I really believe that she, we're soul sisters. We connect the girls. We be doing a lot of the same stuff. But, I mean, hey, we're women. We all typically do a lot of the same things. We're more alike than we are different. So, she begins to research, like, what? in the world how you know this man is a murderer what happened what she finds out is that his ex-girlfriend named Paula decided to cut things off between her and Craig they were in a relationship together and she just decided you know this isn't working for me anymore he harassed her hunted her down followed her to her home and lied and wait for her to enter the door. Once she was inside, he then went ahead and took a hammer and bludgeoned her to death. After doing so, he then went and buried her 
on or in a shallow grave. The police found out he was charged with, of all things, manslaughter. Can you believe that? Not first degree murder, murder, manslaughter. And a part of the reason why they gave him manslaughter, number one, he took on the case that he was innocent because of insanity. He started to act crazy and, you know, started to tell the police, you know, different things. And this was his first offense. But not only was it it's not only was it his first offense, but it also was he was a minor. So let's talk about the three things that really led to his conviction. He was a minor. So a lot of his story was kept out of the press. His name was hidden. He, you know, um, pretended to be crazy and it was his first offense. A lawyer can, you know, talk to a DA and talk down charges. And clearly this man can fake being crazy and it look legitimate. And that's exactly what he did. You would not believe how much time he got because you won't believe it. I'm going to tell you anyway because you need to know this man was totally out of control and the justice system by far definitely was played he was given a 10 year sentence and he was let out in five years so when he got out he decided that he was gonna go to Atlanta to start a new life and I I said it before I'm gonna say it again Everybody thinks that Atlanta's gonna change their lives. That Atlanta's the place to be because it is black city, uh, black magic city or chocolate city. And they think it's gonna change their life. He was one of those people. Mm-hmm. He was one of those people. So he went there. That's when he got his job at Cargyle Plant. And he began to work And as I said previously, he had no disciplinarian problems, good behavior, was a stellar um, worker at his job and had it for eight years. So it obviously was working. He was there for a long time. Now, police, once they realize that he's the primary suspect and they take in all the evidence, they then go and talk to co-workers. He's identified as the person. They kick out a bolo and are waiting for anybody to call them back saying they spotted him. The police find this out. They find out that Craig has been harassing her and the fact that he was a murderer. They find out about his past. And they pretty much know, okay, we got him. We just got to find him. We know who it is. We have witness to corroborate. They saw him leaving the scene. We have evidence. The evidence will probably, the DNA evidence will suggest that he was the one, you know, holding this knife. We have proof that he had been harassing her. And we have a past where he actually murdered an ex-girlfriend who wanted to end things with him. I had everything, but they didn't have the man yet. That is when one particular cop notices or you know just is walking past okay let's just say 
Craig was driving in the car and a cop was just simply walking past his vehicle. He sees the cop and in fear of them maybe catching what he did or knowing what he did, they were going to arrest him. He ends up crashing his car. So the police go over there unknowing, you know, they don't know at the time, unknowingly go up to him and try to see if he's okay, what led to the accident. And in on the radio dispatchers, they do find out that it was him that was responsible for the murder in DeKalb County. So he has blood all over his hands, y'all. And they test that blood, find out it's not his because they initially thought, well, maybe he got hurt um, in the car accident. And that kind of just sealed his fate. The fact that he had this blood on his hands that was not his own, they were like, okay, yep, let's transfer this man over to um, DeKalb County so they can go ahead and charge him and do what they need to do to seek justice for their homicide case. He goes in and immediately sits down with police and he tells them, hey, um, yeah, I did this. I did it. But then says, I didn't do it. This man named Frank did it. And I just hate when Frank does things. He makes me do these things that I absolutely don't want to do. I did not want to do that to her. But Frank, you see, it was Frank. So what is he doing, y'all? He is playing the insanity card once again. Welcome back to Murder in the Black. Happy Thursday, friends. I want to go ahead and jump into announcements. And of course, it is your host, Steph. So first of all, Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. Y'all, my kids just got out of school and I just don't appreciate that. Like, uh, I've already told you guys I'm from Dallas, but I stay in a suburb very far north of Dallas called Briscoe. And they decided to change the calendar. And y'all, I've lived in Texas all my life. My mom worked in a DISD for a number of years. And so I'm familiar with school calendars, you know. And when my kids told me, mom, I'm not getting out until the 22nd. I said, excuse me, the 22nd? I was just so baffled by that. And I just couldn't believe that. But here we are, we have made it to this day. So as you can imagine, I've still been up doing busy things, getting my kids ready for school. It has been a normal week for me, right? Where it was supposed to be a down week, a week that I could easily record this and not have to do this live at 3.47 today. So this episode will be late. I already know that you guys have grace for me. So I am excited to finally get into the holiday spirit. I am a late bloomer when it comes to that. Like I have to, I have to get inside of the week of Christmas to just be super excited. So I am now very, very excited. Also very excited because today is the day that I want to dance with somebody. Whitney Houston movie comes out. And MD and I are legitimately super fans, 
super fans. Do you understand me? So we're about to go to the theater all dolled out. If you want to see pictures of that, we'll go ahead and post that on our Instagram just so you can just like see that we're just kids at heart, honest to God. We're just kids at heart. So I'm dubbing today Whitney Day. It is officially Whitney Day. I'm so excited to see that movie. But enough of the chit chat, girl, because you know we do that a lot over here. I wanted to go ahead and announce that we will be missing next Thursday. So next Thursday will be um, December 29th. We are going to um, miss that episode. So I wanted to go ahead and tell you guys that don't expect another episode from us next Thursday. We will be taking that off um, in an effort to just, you know, spend intentional time with our families. And I'm not going to lie to y'all. Like, my anniversary <laughs> is on December 31st, and me and my husband are celebrating eight years. We're not doing anything too special, but you know, you gotta eat. I'm just trying to, I'm just trying to love on the man God gave me. You know, what can I say? And I love y'all, but I love him more. So I'm gonna see y'all promptly ready for you guys in 2023. The first Thursday is January 6th, so you want to make sure that you follow us and subscribe so that, um, and I say follow and subscribe because on different platforms, they they have different things, right? So I, I believe on Apple Podcasts, it's subscribe, and then on Spotify, it's follow. So make sure you do what you got to do to be notified of our podcast episode when we upload it for January 6th, okay? So just make sure you do that. The next announcement, and what I believe is our last announcement, child, I have so many announcements. I'm the announcement lady. But our next announcement is that we are expanding our platform. I feel like we've heard you guys, for those of you who have left us such nice comments on the reviews and also and our DM on Instagram saying, Steph, MD, like, we need more. We've binged all the episodes. We don't have anything else to listen to. And for those of you who just want a little bit more, right, we are now offering what is called a sus subscriber group. And for those of you who don't know what that is, that essentially is just a place that you subscribe to every month for a low fee and you're able to get bonus content content that is has not been released yet um bonus episodes so for instance go with me let's say that this particular episode was on our subscriber group well you would get it early say i recorded it on a monday you would get it that same monday and then you would probably get another episode from me on that Thursday. Not even probably, you would definitely get a, another episode from me on Thursday. So I that's pretty much how it works. And we're offering that for the low fee of $4.99. Now I get it guys, inflation is killing us all. The middle class barely exists. And 
you know, we got to provide for our kids, mom and them, you know, so I get it. But we will not be raising that price for a full year because we do understand that that, you know, that that's something else to pay for, right? And we don't want it to be an astronomical price. We want you to feel comfortable, um, you know, spending that money and feel like it's well worth it. And for those of you who do go on to, um, or who just are like, I can't do that right now. It's not in my budget, it's the holidays. We absolutely get it. You still will continue to receive Thursday episodes from us weekly as well as any mini episodes that we will record and put on our Instagram and TikTok. So that is our announcements for today. Let's get into the crime case I have for you. It's a good one, guys. 